This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Welcome to Wellness, Fact versus Fiction. I'm Dr. Danielle Bellardo, and I'm a cardiologist who loves evidence-based medicine and nutrition science. But as a millennial, I've watched endless wellness fads take over social media. It's my mission to get to the bottom of things by bringing on the top expert physicians and scientists to help us determine what is fact versus fiction when it comes to your health. It's time to leave the pseudoscience behind and become empowered when it comes to our wellness. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to this week's episode of Wellness Fact versus Fiction. And I am beyond thrilled to have today's guest. Dr. Rowan Francis is an interventional and general cardiologist and internal medicine physician in Essex in the UK. He's also a video maker, speaker, and occasional stand-up comedian. He runs a YouTube channel called Medlife Crisis, which, by the way, I just spent at least two hours going through so many of his YouTube videos. And for everyone that listens to this podcast, you will absolutely love his YouTube. So much amazing evidence-based information on there. Actually, pause this podcast right now and go subscribe to it because that's how good it is. He has up to 500,000 subscribers now where he attempts to combine comedy and medical education. And I will say he does a very good job because I did laugh quite a lot while I was listening to it for a couple hours. His work has won multiple national journalism awards, and he's also a regular contributor to BBC's radio's flagship health program. He studied in London and Cambridge, gaining his medical uh, qualification with a special interest in space medicine and extreme environment physiology. And his PhD research was in novel imaging techniques for heart disease. He has a novel and particular interest in the extremes of physiology, exercise, and technology in medicine, and has worked with AI and wearable companies. He's also a sunny but cynical British mindset and spends most of his time trying to cut through biotech hype. We actually, uh, I don't want to give myself this level of a compliment, but when I was watching your YouTube, I was like, we really do have a similar kind of cutting uh, structure in our criticism of pseudoscience and hype, right? Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, I'm a big fan of, of the podcast, too. And we've had lots of chats via, you know, DM um, about this and that. And, and I think, yeah, now a lot of issues. Um, it's, a, it's a very similar mindset that we have. I tend to be, I, I don't want to sort of reinforce gender stereotypes or anything here, but I tend to kind of more inhabit the slightly male dominated bro science world yes, and a yes. lot of exercise and, you know, that kind of stuff. And I think perhaps maybe a lot of the demographic who I guess, you know, diet is across the board, but uh, maybe in some of the certainly some of the topics you've covered before, like beauty and stuff, maybe more female dominated. But essentially, yeah. it's all the same wellness kind of business. Right. And so it's got all the same pitfalls. Absolutely. And yeah, so I have a ton of um, women listeners, definitely large proportion of my listeners are women. But I will say that, uh, you know, the bro science crowd, they are certainly I definitely get them fired up probably once a week, at least on Twitter or <laughs> Instagram. So we do share that in common. And one of the things I love about you, which I think is so great that I want my listeners to know is that, you know, it's so hard to decipher literally what's fact versus fiction and so much in science and so much in scientific communication. And you do just such a great job of 
being an evidence-based resource that helps people to understand what it is to critically evaluate scientific evidence, but you you are far funnier than I am. <laughs> You're very kind. <laughs> All right. So why don't you tell actually everyone about you? Um, I'm actually curious. This is really a question for me, but I think everyone else may be interested too. So how did you get involved in YouTube? How did you start doing that? Because you know, science communication is kind of its own special skill. And unfortunately, not everyone who is, you know, a very well-established specialist is involved in science communication, which I think leaves a big hole for a lot of the market of pseudoscience. So how did you get into it? What made you go down that road? I guess I sort of fell into it fairly accidentally in that um, I've always kind of enjoyed cracking jokes and stuff when I do teaching sessions. And then I started doing kind of slightly geeky comedy nights, sort of um, stand-up comedy, but a very, very tame, scientifically literate crowd um, through these these kinds of events. And a friend of mine just said, you know, why don't you make put these into video form? Um, and, you know, my one regret is I wish I had started earlier because I think a lot of the real OG big... Uh, science and educational YouTube channels, they just were, I mean, they're very good, but they they, they also were ahead of the curve. They got, they, they got on the platform early. And I, I actually am pretty late to, to all kinds of social media, but I've been kind of doing it in earnest now for maybe three and a half years. And um, yeah, it's great. It's like a second career now. It's become um, a sort of really important part of what I do. And it's it's made you know, day-to-day life quite interesting. Um, not that there's anything wrong with being a, a regular clinician, but um, it's, uh, you know, it's become my outside thing. So a lot of cardiologists, as you know, kind of a very academic. And I started going down that route and I realized it just wasn't for me at all. So um, so this is my side flex, so to speak, rather than being a proper academic. I just um, talk about science uh, instead. Well, I think that's a huge, important uh, part of it, because I always talk about how, you know, you go to the same cardiology big conferences as I do. And there's so many brilliant cardiologists we know around the world who are presenting and discussing important topics. And even on Twitter, I always talk about how Twitter is such a great place for cardiology discussion, where a lot of scientists and physicians and trialists are on there discussing the nuances of research. And then it always feels like there is this kind of lack of connection. There's a, there's a bit of a disconnect between that level of scientific information and then the general public in a digestible way. And I think it's really important that there are physicians and scientists and science communicators that are able to fill that gap. And you do a great, great, great job of it. Um, I also was wondering if, because you kind of debunk a lot of stuff that uh, similar to what I do. And I was wondering if any part of that came from stuff you've seen in practice. Because for me, it wasn't actually a huge interest of mine. I didn't go into this saying, hmm, what's a way that I can, you know, um, make a way in the podcast space or wellness space or whatever at all. It really started because a lot of it because of what I was being presented with by patients or individuals on social media who were asking me about certain pseudoscience, either whether it was a pseudoscientific claim about a diet or a supplement or something like that. And then I've actually seen so many measurable harms from the misinformation. And I think it really exploded, of course, with the pandemic. But is that a part of it, too? Have you seen it clinically kind of bleed over? Yes and no. I mean, I think there is definitely a big difference between the kinds of things that people talk about on social media and 
the kinds of questions that you or I will get asked, which sometimes seem completely divorced from reality. You know, like people asking in in all earnestness, and I, I'm not at all blaming them. You know, they've been they've heard something online, but uh, you know, they'll say, you know, should I be, you know quadrupling the amount of salt I'm taking in and, you know, these kinds of strange questions. Whereas in clinical practice, I think uh, now perhaps part of this is is related to the country I'm in versus the country you're in and particularly the part of the country yeah, you're I'm in. Yeah, I'm in Southern California, I know. <laughs> so, so generally, I find most of my patients, you know, who are, as, as with any kind of general doctor, mostly older patients, mm. I don't have these kind of really mad conversations so often but yes absolutely they they do occur and i've i've certainly encountered a lot of patients who have really um as you say come to harm by getting bad advice online but generally i find the online space a lot more combative and a lot more sort of um argumentative than uh, an inter- face-to-face interaction with a patient where where actually they're not you know, shouting at you that this diet is better than that or anything. They're, they're just genuinely looking for information. So I, I always remember when there's some sort of toxicity on Twitter or wherever, that actually in real life, you know, people are just just looking to try and, you know, do the best for their health. So I don't have those unpleasant conversations in real life. A hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. And even, you know, as I always say, like reiterating this podcast, it's never the the victim's fault of the misinformation. I mean, I myself have been totally fallen for uh, pseudoscience in specialties outside of cardiology. I, I've totally believed some things that are, you know, scammy pseudoscientific trends and stuff like that because it's hard to decipher and it's confusing and it's never the patient's fault and it's never the individual's fault um, who is even asking the questions. Everyone's just looking for help. You know, the people who I really have take issue with are the people who are profiting off of the misinformation, which you and I have talked about a lot. And I also think it's just really great. You actually are a great example of someone who uses your social media for so much good. And I just want to point that out because it's so easy for physicians or scientists to sell out and promote supplements or things that aren't evidence-based. And I haven't done that and you haven't done that. And I appreciate that about you. Likewise. All right. Well, so the topic today that we're going to get into is I've gotten a lot of questions regarding the spectrum of all things um, exercise and cardiovascular disease. And just to reiterate to everyone, um, he has a lot of great, phenomenal YouTube videos on this too. So if you are interested in more after the podcast, you should check it out because it covers a lot of these topics even even more in great depth. But I do want to start out with talking about exercise and cardiovascular disease in general, what do we know about the health benefits of exercise and cardiovascular disease? And is it possible that we could be exercising too much? And what are some of the potential risks? Um, Because we have a range of listeners, but certainly a lot of athletes, um, including I have uh, some patients that are probably listening right now that are ultra marathoners that are doing uh, Ironman regularly. So would love for you to cover the spectrum on exercise and cardiovascular health. Sure, yeah. I mean, so I think I'll probably I'll come to the excessive exercise um, second because I think, as you say, that probably applies to 
not many of us. I, I, I yes. uh, definitely, I'm definitely not in danger of doing too much <laughs> exercise at the moment. But you know, you, your first question was sort of what are the cardiovascular benefits of exercise, and 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 beyond that, really, you know, I, I sometimes start um, some of my talks with this kind of slightly contrived comparison between all the medications we prescribe, which, you know, are effective, but they, they're generally less effective than I think a lot of us realize. And there was a, a sort of a, a top 10 most important breakthroughs in medicine survey in the BMJ a little while ago and uh, British Medical Journal. And the only medications to make the list were, I think, were penicillin and, and vaccines and everything else was, was um, sort of non- medical um so really you know and those are obviously not new inventions so when it comes to medications there's not that much recently that really is a, is a blockbuster i will gun. say i will debate that i debate bmj and say glp ones i think in my so, so this was this was before the uh, before the the, the the modern era it's probably yeah. a few years old now so medications you know um most of them are not magic bullets but there is a treatment that is available to us which you know has excellent level of evidence in that it reduces cancer risk, it reduces heart disease, it can improve depression, it can help uh, control diabetes. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And it's free. And it's got minimal side effects. And, you know, as, as I said, it is a bit of a contrived uh, comparison. But of course, it's, it's ex exercise. It really is a wonder drug. And, you know, I think if we think about it as a therapy as a medication, for example, then actually a lot of the things we'll probably talk about today, you know, you can kind of think about them as dosing a medication. So we'll talk about sort of exercise dose and things like that. But, you know, there really is an absolute wealth of, of benefits from exercise. So I'm, you know, absolutely a, a sort of real zealot. But one of the key messages that I try to convey, and again, I think this comes back to the difference between real life patients who generally are not sort of extreme athletes is you don't need to think about exercise like some really really heavy duty workout exercise can take all forms and particularly um, as we get older even things like going for a brisk walk is an extremely effective exercise for for most people and i think again most of us don't get enough of that basic movement in our days you know a lot of us are having sedentary office based jobs so don't think about exercise like this this sweaty, difficult thing that has to be done in a gym or you have to be running miles on the road. Exercise can take all kinds of different forms, whether it's, you know, dancing, gardening, vacuuming. So that's the, that's the first message. I think that, you know, there are masses of benefits and short and long term from, from exercise. In terms of sort of too much exercise, this is something that... Um, I, I hear a lot, particularly from from those who are quite sort of into their uh, sports, you know, cyclists, ultra runners, uh, like you said. And a lot of that is to do with headlines, which I think have been a bit misleading. And there was some suggestion that too much exercise is 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 bad for us. And there are certainly downsides to doing a lot of exercise, but I think a lot of them have been kind of misreported. Um, and again, the key message is you really have to be doing huge amounts of exercise to get to that level. So 99.9% .9 of people listening, please don't worry about this. Just, you know, uh, 
make sure you're getting plenty of exercise because it's very unlikely you're going to cross this threshold. But it did emerge from, uh, you know, the last few decades. And then there was, you know, particularly one very large observational study which showed uh, an uptick in uh, overall risk compared to amount of exercise done. So if you start with somebody who's doing no exercise at all, then clearly their overall cardiovascular risk and their overall you know, health risk, mortality risk, is going to be at a certain level quite high. Even doing just uh, half an hour, three times a week of exercise drastically reduces that risk. And that risk continues to fall and hits a nadir around about, coincidentally, the exact amount that we recommend in, in most guidelines for people to be getting. So, you know, we don't just pull these figures out of the air. And the amount that we, we tend to recommend in, in exercise guidelines um, is, uh, on the whole, you want to be doing at least two and a half hours in total per week. So it's about half an hour of moderate exercise five times a week. And of course, that's, you know, a, a minimum recommendation, but it's it's where you will accrue a lot of the, the health. But that's in the UK. I think America's pretty comparable. You will accrue many of the health benefits. And that curve will continue to drop a bit more, but you're, you're getting a diminishing returns. So the more exercise you do, you're still improving your risk, but it's, it's less and less for each incremental hour. And then interestingly, after a, a, a sort of a long plateau, it seems to go up at a certain level. So what was going on there? And this, was, this has been a topic of quite a bit of discussion. And to cut a long, long story short, a lot of that might have been explainable with confounding factors. And when this has been sort of more prospectively looked at, there is one risk that emerges in endurance athletes, which does appear to be real, which is the risk of atrial fibrillation, which is an irregular heart rhythm. And this can increase your risk of having a stroke. That's kind of its main implication. But it can also affect your, your cardiac function to a lesser extent. So that does seem to be more common in endurance athletes. And there are sort of uh, reasons that we think behind this to do with sort of the mechanics of the heart and, and sort of stretch in certain parts of it. But it seems that that is more common. And certainly I have encountered these patients quite frequently. There tend to be sort of senior athletes, people who've been runners or cyclists for most of their life. And they're now sort of 45, 50, 55, that kind of age group. And they're getting atrial fibrillation at a significantly higher rate than other people. But their atrial fibrillation does not appear to be quite as high risk as other patients getting atrial fibrillation, which tends to be more related to high blood pressure or alcohol, heart disease. So that that is one risk. And, and it, it can certainly be um, a reason to suggest to people that they shouldn't necessarily be aiming for huge amounts of exertion. Um, and it's something to be aware of if you are doing those those real sort of ultra endurance events. And this would be sort of in the region of about 10 hours a week. And that, that's, that's a, a, a blunt kind of uh, guesstimate, but it seems like that's the kind of level we're talking about. That's specific for endurance training rather than strength training, like power. Yes, yes this is endurance training. And although endurance combining with load, so 
more sort of cyclists and rowers tend to be at even higher risk because there is that compounding. But even uh, runners as well, which is less load dependent in excessive strength training, obviously there are pitfalls there, but they tend to be mostly musculoskeletal. I put that word in just for you. I literally (laughs) love the way he says musculoskeletal. It is, it blows the American pronunciation of it away. He says it in his YouTube video a lot. It's my favorite. Just so you guys, (laughs) if uh, just pay attention, it's it's excellent. So yes, I mean, there there are certainly risks from a lot of uh, resistance and and strength training, but uh, not in, not this particular one. Yeah. Um, Then some of the other sort of things that have been mentioned with excessive exercise, things like coronary calcification was was noted in some studies. And there does seem to be a signal that there is uh, a level of coronary calcification seen in some senior athletes, which appears to be above baseline, but it doesn't seem to translate to actually a presence of clinically significant heart disease. So in, in, in simple terms, there's probably a little bit of calcium, so you know, essentially sort of lime scale in the arteries, but it doesn't seem to be causing too many problems. So I, I, I don't think that should be a risk that people are, are worried about. And of course, as aforementioned, you know, exercise offers so many cardiovascular benefits. I don't want to give the impression that there are pitfalls here, but this is you know, at the higher end of the spectrum. Well, and I love that you mentioned that exercise is one of the most effective and I would say underutilized medications that we can prescribe and recommend because it really is incredibly effective. I mean, the data on exercise, um, especially strength training for people as they age, I just had a podcast episode about how important this is and with regards to protein intake and sarcopenia and, of course, cardiovascular activity in general. So important. And I do also love how you mention, you know, getting in any sort of activity possible. It doesn't have to be, there doesn't have to be this great barrier to entry to activity. There doesn't have to be this kind of miserable uh, trope associated with it. Although I will say that I, so I particularly hate strength training, but the data overwhelmingly, I'm a very much a cardio person, um, always been doing long distance running and cycling, et cetera. But I, the past, you know, six months or so, I don't even know how many months I've been doing strength training and I still hate it, but I make myself go uh, to the trainer just because the data is so uh, impressive with regards to overall health. It's also interesting too, um, and I know you talked about this before as well, and I've read a lot about this, is the fact that you know, even with the individuals who are um, ultra athletes and even on that end of the spectrum, um, even if they do develop atrial fibrillation or coronary artery disease, they're still lower risk than, you know, someone that's matched with without it because of, of their all their activity. It helps to reduce all these other risk factors. So it's not even a reason, you know, it's something to keep on your radar if you are, you know, one of these uh, a small amount of individuals who participate in these activities, but it's not a reason to stop. And it's something to just keep in mind. I totally agree. And so do we think the mechanism of that for specifically AFib and in ultra endurance athletes, do we think that's because of left atrium size? Yeah, we think yeah. it's it's atrial stretch, essentially. So mm-hmm. your atrial pressure starts going up because your mitral valve is is closed for longer. Right. As your stroke volume increases, your left ventricle increases in size, and you also get increased venous return, so more blood coming back to the heart, and so you get biatrial stretch. So yes, it's it's thought to be essentially just sort of pressure loading 
and I guess volume as well to an extent. It's not fully understood, but th- that's that's the, the, th- the thought to be the mechanism. Um, but yes, it does seem a little bit different to other forms of atrial fibrillation. So that's why we're still trying to figure it out, because obviously atrial fibrillation in in the majority of the population tends to be a disease process associated secondary to, to something else systemic, which you know has problems in itself. And it's a term we don't use anymore, but this the, the athletes or the, the fit people with AF was often referred to as lone AF. And um, this was a, a term that certainly when I was training was quite common, but it's kind of gone out of fashion now because it, it I think maybe gives a slightly misleading idea. But it, it seems like this is a slightly separate category. So, you know, some of these patients, even though they're, they're Chad's VASC, their scoring system for atrial fibrillation would suggest that they should be anticoagulated. A lot of these patients actually decline, you know, and obviously that's entirely uh, their choice. And some of these people have been studied and they seem to be at lower risk of thromboembolic complications compared to other people with AF. Although, I mean, I would still recommend they all do still get anticoagulated if they if they score that high. But um, yeah, it's 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 hopefully not um, as risky. And yeah, and super important that you reiterate too as well that regardless, overall exercise helps to reduce all of these risk factors. And even when we're looking at CHADS 2 VASC, for anyone who's listening, when we're evaluating whether or not someone needs to be on anticoagulation, which both of us do regularly in our practices as cardiologists, you're evaluating other associated risk factors that have to do with age, whether or not they have heart failure, diabetes, vascular disease, et cetera, and hypertension. And so we are looking at all these different variables to see if someone uh, requires anticoagulation. And oftentimes, people that are super athletic and doing a lot of activity are reducing their risk for all of the associated variables and risk factors. So it is really just an important um, component of the equation of how important exercise is in overall health. And just remembering that chronic disease doesn't necessarily happen in a vacuum. And so you're, the benefits of exercise generally outweigh the, the risks. For sure. So one thing I wanted to ask you about, which I actually do not know much about, and I'm excited to learn from you because I get this question a lot, is target heart rate training. So when people are interested in doing exercise, and we'll separate it, as you and I discussed, we'll separate it into you know, your standard healthy 30-year-old that's looking to exercise and improve their cardiovascular fitness, um, what it means for whether or not there's any um, utility in doing this target heart rate training for them versus someone who maybe has coronary artery disease more in the cardiac rehab setting. Sure. Yeah, I think that's an important uh, differentiator because I think there's there can be a lot of jargon around this, this these kind of stuff, and actually a lot of it can be simplified. So it's it's almost become a bit of a meme in itself. But this yeah. uh, you know zone two training, which you've probably seen hundreds and hundreds of times and, and just mentioned by every podcaster and, and blogger. And why it's interesting is that I, I was like, we didn't learn about that in cardiology training. So, uh, you know, it's not, it was never in our cardiology training. So I was like, what is the clinical significance of this if it's been never mentioned? So yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear you uh, dive in. Yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of this stuff I, I've, I've learned sort of post, post-grad um, when I really got into exercise actually again in a 
pathological sense. So this was um, exercise in in heart failure. So doing mm. cardiopulmonary exercise testing, and then really trying to understand the 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 metabolics and uh, of of exercise. So so it, I think a general clinician often wouldn't encounter this kind of stuff, and. The zone system is is something that I think a lot of people ask about, and zone zero or zone one is essentially zone zero. Is essentially, you're at rest. Zone one is very light exertion, so this may be your stretching, your warming up, or something. And zone two is defined in different ways, actually. So you know, a lot of people use heart rates on their devices or whatever, and that's kind of what you're asking about targeted heart rate zone training. But actually, the, the, the the sort of more strict definition of zone two is you're exercising without crossing the the anaerobic threshold, which is the kind of in in layman's terms. And uh, then I'll, I'll sort of expand on that in a second. Then zone three, four, five are above, and uh, zone five is your absolute sort of maximal power output. So that's like you know sprinting the the hundred meters or um, uh, doing something that you really can't maintain for very long, and then accordingly, zone four, bit less. Um, again, you wouldn't be able to maintain a great deal, and that you can define these in different ways. So one is to do with the, the muscle fibers that you're activating. So zone two is your slow twitch, your type one muscle fibers, and it is favoured as something to train in because it is thought to be the z- exercise zone where you're maximising your mitochondrial function. So you're burning fat um, preferentially, and um, uh, this is thought to be the the best place to train for mitochondrial health. But the the, the kind of more basic definition of zone two is just moderate exercise. So you can, you know, maybe chat to the person next to you a little bit, but you can't necessarily do a long sentence. You can, you know, you just, just going for a jog or something like that. So all of this jargon, you know, this zone two and this training and mitochondrial oxidation and oxidative phosphorylation, all these things that are mentioned, you can just say moderate exercise. You know, that, that, that's a lot more understandable and common sense. I think most people understand what moderate exercise is, something that you can maintain for, you know, maybe not straight away, but you, you're looking to do this for about an hour. That seems to be a, a good target. If you have um, different exercise regimens, like one hour, four times or five times a week versus five hours in one go, it appears that one hour, five times a week is going to be better. And that comes back to the analogy we we're making about medication. So, you know, you'd, you you would take it more frequently rather than having a, a massive dose in one go. And um, so I think the, the key thing is, and again, you know, mentioning the difference between a clinical patient and, and, and someone who's not unwell, but looking to maximize wellness or fitness, is you can cut a lot of this confusing stuff out and just say that training at a moderate level, so this is what we, uh, uh, zone two, for about an hour, as as often as you can, you know, ideally about four or five times a week, seems to be the sweet spot for for optimizing mitochondrial health, which is you know uh, uh, otherwise known as sort of aerobic fitness. So that that's kind of the the concept. And then your question was, you know, how important is this? 
And I think coming back to the same theme of not trying to overcomplicate things, I would say the same thing is, is train at a level where you are comfortable doing it, but you're, you know, you're feeling like you're getting a workout, but you, you'd be able to maintain it for that period of time of about an hour or so. Um, and that, that may take a little while. It may take a few weeks and start at 15 minutes, 20 minutes and build up. But that, that kind of um, intensity. And then I wouldn't really worry too much about what your smartwatch or your um, chest strap or whatever is saying. But I think in the vast majority of cases, you will find yourself in that zone two region anyway. You know, so I, I didn't really pay much attention to this for a while. And then when I had upgraded my Apple Watch, and I've got a few, a few of these different devices these days. Um, and I, I said, OK, let's let's see what all this zone two fuss is about. And I found that, you know, just going for my regular cycle to work, I was I was in that range. I was well in that range. You know, I was was bang in the middle without kind of really any effort. So I knew that I was working out, but I wasn't killing myself. I wasn't really going hell for, for leather. And I think a, a lot of people will instinctively understand what moderate exercise is. So one of the problems I have with much of the kind of quantified self wearable market is I, I feel like not that I'm suggesting zone two training has has uh, no use at all or, or paying attention to your heart rate is is not useful at all. I'm not suggesting that, but I wouldn't obsess over it. And I think a lot of the time we gather data, which just kind of reinforces what we instinctively know anyway. So, you know, a lot of people, I, I just mentioned heart rate variability because it was on my mind because a lot of people will talk about a metric like that and say, oh, according to my heart rate variability, I'm tired today. I was like, well, do you feel tired? Yeah. I mean, so you already knew you were tired, right? So I don't always necessarily understand the incremental benefit in some of these things. But yes, zone two from a sort of physiological viewpoint is is ideal for that aerobic fitness. And then you should be combining this, as you were saying, you know, with, with more uh, other other types of exercise. So combining with strength exercise, but also you should try and hit that zone five now and again, if you can. So try and build in perhaps some intervals into your training where you're, you're getting your heart rate right up as high as possible. But that doesn't have to be that, that frequent. Very, very, very helpful. And you've already kind of did a quick little preview into one of the questions I was going to ask you. And so I want to go into wearables for sure and discuss the Apple study and all of that um, in a little bit. But I do want to uh, focus first on what you just mentioned with regards to heart rate variability. So this is actually something, maybe because I'm in Southern California, but it's geographically uh, related that lots of patients um, listen to podcasts that discuss heart rate variability frequently. But it is something that I have individuals, you know, that uh, have no heart failure or um, condition where you be clinically uh, relevant that you be monitoring any changes in heart rate variability or anything like that. And just for anyone listening, heart rate variability is just simply a measure of the variation in time between each heart heartbeat and it's controlled by your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. And so I have patients who, uh, due to wearables, whether it's their Oura Ring or their Apple Watch, that will come in freaking out about a change in their heart rate variability. Oh, really? 
And yeah, absolutely. And what they heard that this indicates um, from a podcast that they learned about. And so I would love if you could kind of just explain what do we know already about heart rate variability and what do people not need to worry about? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's an interesting topic because it it is one, like a lot of these things, where the, you know, there's ongoing research. So, you know me, I, I like my kind of medical history and um, I always find it interesting where these these different things started from and, and um, you know, the whole measuring of ourselves uh, and, and the, the quantified self um, goes back centuries, you know, um, to one of Galileo's buddies who called Centauri or Centauri, who, who measured everything he ate and weighed everything, everything that came in, everything that came out. It was, you know, um, quite, quite an undertaking <laughs> 500 years ago. <laughs> And, you know, there have been accounts throughout history of people meticulously measuring as much data about their health as possible. So it's not a new thing, but clearly tech has changed it. And for heart rate variability, I was quite interested how we first noted that. And that goes back a few decades and really to the, the invention of the ambulatory cardiac monitor by, by Norman Holter. And it was found that, as you mentioned, heart rate variability is just the variation in the in the gap between each heartbeat and you you might intuitively think that you to have a regular pulse should should be desirable so why would you want variability between heartbeats but it emerged that people with a poor variability um it was associated with with quite significant health problems so it was noted first in uh, after heart attacks so people who had a heart attack their heart rate variability decreased, and this seemed to predict worse outcomes. Then it's been noted in all kinds of different health conditions since then. But, you know, I think you mentioned earlier, heart failure is the one that I think a lot of cardiologists are most familiar with now. And so it mirrors a lot of other areas of, of this whole field where it starts as a measurement of a pathology, but then it kind of drifts to a wellness device. And I know you've talked about continuous glucose monitors. And I think that would be, you know, that would be another key prime example of something which was noted in clinical practice related to quite serious disease, then being extrapolated to day-to-day -day life. And, you know, I do always try and emphasize that we shouldn't try and over-medicalize normal life. Some people are just sort of very you know, have that mindset that they just want to measure everything and, and sort of really data driven. And that's fine if we know what to do with the data. So heart rate variability is, I think, in that slight gray zone at the moment in that I think people are getting a lot of data, but we're not entirely sure um, how to act on some of it. And I will say that also one caveat, too, that I mention to my patients all the time is that we're not even sure of the validity or the accuracy of the data that the patients are even getting with regards right. to yeah. their Oura Ring or their Apple Watch. We don't even have that validated that it's completely accurate, too. So um, it's not like we're using, you know, a Zeo patch or a loop, which is, you know, maybe different, but this or obviously an ICD uh, with a um, with an actual monitor inside that we're seeing. So. We, the accurate, uh, whether or not the readings and the data they're generating is even, uh, we don't even have ability to interpret at this time. Yeah, I, th I think that's a really important point that um, I'm glad you you um, remembered 
to to mention that these technology companies and you know let, let me be clear i i find the technology really exciting and and interesting I, you know so so uh, i i do believe that that there is potential for big things to be done but they're all private companies with proprietary technology and um we don't really know how their algorithms work because they don't share that and the heart rate variability may seem like a easy measurement but actually there are about 10 different ways of calculating it and, and you know one seems to have emerged as the kind of main um, way which is the uh, root mean square of the standard deviation which is just a mathematical formula but there are all different types now there has actually been a study published recently that that i was um, just taking a look at where they did attempt to validate some of the key models that are out there but because technology moves fast, all of the ones that they had evaluated are kind of the older models of whatever is out now. But what the study authors were concluding is that hopefully the later models should be even better. I mean, that's a slightly optimistic take. But what they found there is that they were decent, uh, most of them. They, they looked at the kind of six market-leading devices. The Garmin performed the worst, um, mm. and the Whoop uh, was, was the most accurate for... Um, heart rate variability specifically. You know, I, I don't have a Whoop device myself, but after I'd read the conclusions of the study, I went to kind of look at their system and how they, they kind of present this data. And a lot of the use people find of heart rate variability is, is recovery. So this is something that athletes tend to use a lot, that they will look at their heart rate variability to assess whether what their sort of recovery potential is. So if their heart rate variability is high, they uh, that rec recovery's potential is high, and so they may feel like that they can push it a bit harder that day. Whereas if it's low, then that might inform their choices of exercise. For me, I, I, I'm not convinced particularly apart sure at the super elite level you know professional athletes are going to look for any incremental marginal gain but a lot of the time you know i'll speak to a patient and they'll say i need to you know optimize my hrv and do this and i'll say okay yeah i mean that might work but you know do you think maybe stopping smoking might be a slightly more beneficial thing to do you know and and, and i feel like they're focusing on something that's going to give a a very small return or move the needle in a very subtle way rather than making bigger gains so that's just you know the, uh, what i see in, in practice the other thing that heart rate variability seems to be quite um, useful for and this is something that i also uh, need to explore a bit more because i'm not a sleep expert at all but i've been trying to get a bit more into the, the science of sleep which is another field that's really um, got a lot of interesting research, but again, a lot of kind of pseudoscience for want of a better word. And myself, I, I, I have a lot of sleep issues. So this is something that I've got personal interest in. And I'm now starting to explore whether heart rate variability might be useful in that sense. But again, I get the impression that it is kind of just reinforcing things that we kind of know intuitively. So I know when I've slept badly, I don't necessarily feel like this device is going to tell me something. Some, uh, one um, uh, article I was reading or something I read where the person who, by the way, you know, a lot of these influencers often are in partnership with the companies, which, which um, is something that I think people don't realize so often. They'll, they'll either have consulted for one of the 
companies they're talking about or, or their show is completely sponsored by them. And they'll say, oh, I, I realized that, uh, you know, looking at my heart rate variability data, that, I, that drinking alcohol before I went to bed made my sleep worse. And I was like, I mean, I could have told you that for free without any kind of device. Like, I really, <laughs> I don't need that data. So again, I, I don't know. But my, my co- common theme to a lot of wearable stuff uh, is that sometimes I feel like we're just gathering data for the sake of gathering data. And I don't know. I mean, you just have to think back to when sort of the first Fitbit came out and there were these tech guys who would, who would talk to me sort of really excited. Say, can you believe this? You know, we can track heart rate through the day. Isn't it amazing? We're going to unlock all these secrets. And I was like, ah, you know, I don't know how many secrets we're going to get just from heart rate. And, you know, at the end of the day, that hasn't materialized. So they've been looking for more and more now each iteration of every smart device that comes out can measure something new oxygen saturations you know blood pressure to an extent although it's still still a not we haven't really got to the holy grail of blood pressure non-invasive monitoring and so each time they're sort of adding some new variable but i don't know if the incremental benefit is actually is actually there questions that you know i always pose with these devices and this goes to whether it's looking at a whoop with heart rate variability is the fact that there's first the question of is the data we're collecting from this device validated and accurate okay say if it is then is there an intervention on this data that shows a clinical benefit because we can't just assume that having data makes something better, right? Um, Because for example, with an aura ring, I've had patients of my own who say that the aura ring told me that I had a horrible sleep last night and now I'm so stressed about falling asleep tonight and that, you know, or the heart rate variability differences gave them a lot of anxiety. And, Mm. you know, sometimes people who have wearables actually have you know, just there's just as much likelihood that they may have some increased health anxiety. We don't know. So to me, the ethical question would be, can you take the intervention first? Can we validate it? And then is there an actual intervention to the data that provides more benefits than risks? Because there's just as many hypothetical risks as there are to benefits. I can tell you that there is data showing that wearables can increase health anxiety, for sure. Right. So can you is that from the Apple study? No, so th- this was, no. this was, okay. um, I can't remember if they captured that there, but, but I've seen at least two studies of, of patients with, with wearables, you know, uh, driving health anxiety. So oh. that definitely is true. Heart variability evidence base is, is robust when it comes to disease, for sure. Exactly. But no, I, I'm not aware of any kind of intervention based on heart rate variability data specifically uh, that is that is really actionable that has been has been demonstrated with with a sort of hard out, out endpoint and even with patients who have coronary artery disease or pathology even knowing their heart rate variability change will actually it's not going to change the fact that we're going to want to optimize them on guideline directed medical therapy it's not going to change the fact that we're going to want to optimize their nutrition and their sleep and their exercise 
So even with patients with the pathology, we don't have a set intervention specifically other than the things we're already recommending. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point. I mean, your listeners, um, I apologize if some, some of them already know that the story of, of the CAST study, but I think it's, it's, it's a, an ana- analogous situation where it's tempting to try and act upon this variable, whereas actually it's just a sign of something else. So the story of this is, you know, it's very famous in, in medicine that uh, it wasn't heart rate variability, although it is related to that because in some disease states, heart rate variability increases, and that's actually a bad thing. S- specifically, uh, this was post-heart attack patients having ectopic beats, so having e- extra beats, and those patients seemed to do worse, and that was that was noted as as um, a clear sign that uh, patients were were at higher risk if they had these ectopics. So it seemed logical, and this is you know within my lifetime, um, it seemed logical to try and obliterate those extra heartbeats with medications to, to slow the, the heart down. And what happened is those patients died even more. So, you know, we the, the intervention that we tried to introduce ended up killing more patients. So it's, you know, it was it was completely the wrong thing to do to try and act on this metric that they had detected. And thankfully, I, I you know, that mentality has changed a bit. So heart rate variability in itself, nobody's trying to act on it directly in medicine. But I worry that, you know, one of the apps I found was sort of giving the impression it was it was breathing exercises, essentially. So breathing in and out can affect your heart rate variability. And that is you know related to why it is a, a useful marker. But the app was giving a suggestion that just changing your heart rate variability with sort of, you know, five minutes of breathing that would translate to better health outcomes because the number was was higher like that's the totally the wrong way of looking at it isn't wow. it it's so so the, these are the kinds of causality and and causation confusion that often occurs it's it's not a magic number it's just another marker like so many other things um that uh, isn't necessarily the target for intervention but just a a marker of something else my patients listening are going to say, if I don't need to worry about heart rate variability, why do you make me uh, measure my blood pressure? Because I promise you there's a reason, because there's something that we have data that we can intervene on that shows benefits for cardiovascular risk reduction. Whereas heart rate variability, as you just mentioned, isn't something that we can intervene on. Therefore, you know, we have no data at this time to show that an individual who has wears a whoop that is looking at their heart rate variability and noticing changes that there's anything specific we can do other than the recommendations that we already have for healthfulness in general. Yeah, exactly. I I think I'm absolutely fine with with people taking an interest in this and doing this and, and, and if it can be used as a motivator. So for me, actually, one of the biggest motivators for getting back into fitness after a few years off um, when I, I kind of let things slide, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, was my resting heart rate. So heart rate variability devices weren't really available easily back then, but resting heart rate is, is something really easy. And, and it's another you know, marker. Is it, it can be extremely rewarding to see these parameters get better. So, so absolutely, if you want to use it as an incentive, that's great. You know, For me, getting my heart rate further down and down with more exercise. And what's the best way to improve your heart rate variability? Well, exercise you know so so for sure use it as an incentive but coming back to your sort of blood pressure point 
and comparing it to heart rate. So these are you know, two of the most basic parameters we look at. We know that uh, a lower blood pressure, or at least within the normal range, is, is better than a high blood pressure. And w- if we give medications, it comes down. That has, that has been shown to translate to a clinical benefit. So we can see for every millimeter of mercury that it comes down above uh, the normal range, there is a benefit. Heart rate, you might think the same thing. You might think, well, a lower heart rate, you've got a better mortality than someone at, the, uh, at a higher heart rate, which is true. But then if you give something to bring the heart rate down, it doesn't translate to a clinical benefit. So, you know, it it's all depends on, um, uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's a, a complex sort of um, argument behind that in that what you're treating is the pathology in blood pressure, whereas heart rate is, again, like heart rate variability, a marker um, of something else which you're not intervening on with with a beta blocker or whatever drug in that particular scenario. I So I totally agree. So I used to be really, um, I think maybe when I started medicine residency, I used to be really interested in the technology stuff. Um, I used to be super interested in what was going to happen with wearables. And I think that me six or eight years ago would have probably loved CGMs. Um, and then when I started to learn about evidence-based medicine and learn from David Noonan at Oxford, he kind of blew the lid off of everything I thought about what an intervention is and whether or not more data is better and whether or not it sends someone down a testing rabbit hole or whether mm. it causes anxiety or whether it actually leads to more pathology. And then once I reframed things and said, you know, what what are you going to do with your aura ring data? Like you said, there could be someone who um, likes tracking their steps and it's their goal to get 10,000 steps a day or it's their goal to get their resting heart rate down and this has helped motivate them to exercise. That's fantastic. But there could be just as many other people who say, you know what, I'm not getting my resting heart rate. I get down, I gave up. I'm not exercising anymore, I give up. This is a waste, it's not working for me or someone who it gives them anxiety. And so I think until I become such a stickler for this, until there's a randomized controlled trial showing there's benefit. I mean, anecdotes are important for each patient's individual experience. And I always tell patients, if something's working for you, stick with it. But it's the reason why we don't make this as a broad recommendation. We don't tell everyone to wear wearables because we don't have data that it's going to be beneficial. And from there, I actually would love for you to talk about the Apple study, what we know about Apple watches, because I thought, I was convinced there's no way that this isn't going to be beneficial to find AFib and to find all these other things. I was convinced before the study that it would surely be a home run and we would tell every patient to have an Apple Watch. And I would love for you to explain what happened. Sure. I mean, it's, it's a little while ago. So the, the numbers, um, I'm afraid, have uh, exited my brain. But I That's can okay. give you the, the, the kind of... Overview. Yeah. So, you know, we've already talked about atrial fibrillation today, which is that irregular heart rhythm which is a very common problem, you know, particularly as we get older. And definitely is a, is a quarter of strokes are thought to be uh, secondary to atrial fibrillation. So it's definitely an important thing to look for. But this whole kind of question comes back to a, a core concept of epidemiology of, 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 um, of medicine, which is your pretest probability and your false positive and your false negative rate. So when when you do any medical test, there is uh, nothing's perfect, and uh, no matter you know whatever test, even you know you may think a blood test or something like that, everything has an error margin. And for some tests, it's you know they're very good, but but you know uh, what we regard as a as a very 
effective, a very uh, a good medical test would be something with an accuracy of greater than 95%, um, ideally significantly higher than that. But that would be regarded, and, and lots of our tests that we use in clinical practice are not even at that level. Um, so, and when I say accuracy, that's kind of not a, not a correct terminology there. You can have false positives. So these are patients who get a positive result, uh, like their device is telling them they've got atrial fibrillation when they actually don't. And then you can have false negatives, which are people who have the problem, but the test is saying they don't. We won't think about false negatives right now, because for a test like the Apple Watch, which essentially is a screening test. So screening is where you're looking for a disease in the absence of symptoms. And that's the whole point. You're trying to catch something before it presents clinically. Um, so this is a screening test. You want to have, you know, having some um, erring on the side of oversensitivity is, is, is better for a screening test. But obviously you don't want too many false positives, but you want to try and catch as many positives as possible. So you want your false negatives to be low. Then you've got to think about your pretest probability. So this is how likely the patient is to have the problem. And the Apple Watch came out with this algorithm, which again, you know, is 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 kind of proprietary technology, but there is a bit of bad blood, which I think there's a legal case which has recently just um, concluded that uh, there was a, a smaller company called Cardia or a live core, the device was called Cardia. And they were working with Apple. They had a sort of aftermarket device that you could use with the Apple Watch. And then Apple just decided, well, we're just going to do our own thing in that way that Apple does and um, kind of completely undermined their, um, their business model. Anyway, so they developed this technology quite rapidly. And in an attempt to try and validate or at least you know, I think it was a good move, absolutely, uh, to 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 try and you know actually offer some real world data. Um, they hooked up with with doctors at Stanford to to try and do some uh, um, you know genuine uh, research. And we've seen this pattern now mirrored by people like Fitbit as well. And so it was it was really interesting. You know, I was I was genuinely quite excited to, to see because this was a, a totally new data set, because now these researchers had access to tens of thousands of people, which is just something that you just don't get in a clinical trial normally. I mean, my PhD research, you know, I was struggling to get 200 patients. Long story short, as I said, I've forgotten the numbers. It It was so much noise. And why is that? The case because who's buying Apple Watches most of the time it tends to be healthy young people, so their pretest probability of having atrial fibrillation is minute. So out of the you know four hundred and twenty thousand or whatever it was that that were initially included in the study, the amount of people that actually had any kind of meaningful um, information was in the low hundreds, and out of that, even fewer ha had um, uh, sort of validated um, uh, data. So essentially, what that what I'm trying to say here is, in a population with a low pretest probability, the likelihood if you get a positive result, so if your watch gives you an alert atrial fibrillation detected, you are far more likely not to have atrial fibrillation than atrial fibrillation purely due to statistics, because the disease you're looking for is rare 
and the false positive rate, even though it's very good, because you're simply uh, just based on you know numbers. If even if you have a ninety nine percent accuracy rate, that but if the 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 frequency of the disease is significantly less, you're still going to get way more false positives than true positives. The only way to really sort of tilt this in favor of it being a useful screening test is if you're doing it in a much higher risk elderly population. So the conclusion was that it can be a useful tool in, in the right populations. So, you know, certainly when I've kind of um, I made a video on this a while ago and if I if it had been more recent, perhaps I would have been less rusty in my knowledge of this. But my conclusion was if you really want to kind of move the needle in terms of offering health benefit, then you know, buy it for your grandparents rather than yourself. Um, because they're probably going to, you know, their pre-test probability of having something like atrial fibrillation is so much higher that the result uh, might be more useful. So this is a long-winded and perhaps not that entirely clear way of saying that when you're screening for a a condition like atrial fibrillation in the general population, where it's rare in a large uh, amount of people, but common in elderly people, is you're going to get a lot, a, a load of false positives. Um, and again, you know, atrial fibrillation detection is is improving, but once more, you know, we don't know exactly the algorithms the different companies use. They all claim to have. Uh, uh, accuracy, the uh, sort of continuous monitoring that most devices use is photoplethysmography, um, uh, which is the the little green flashing light you have on the back of your smartwatch. But the more uh, sort of clinically validated thing is when you do an ECG, and quite a few smart devices now offer that function that you can sort of put your finger on your watch or um, whatever the device is, and it'll record a single lead ECG. Um, Alivecore have now, you know, they've got a six lead version. I think they're even saying a 12 lead version is coming soon. Um, and obviously, you know, that offers more accuracy. And these different companies mostly use sort of AI algorithms to try and recognize atrial fibrillation. So the, there are potential risks at every point. And I think it hasn't transpired to be quite the wonder intervention that Apple were hoping it, it would be. Where I find it useful is in patients who have symptoms. So this is by definition not screening. So if somebody comes into clinic with palpitations and we do a you know week-long recorder on them, they we can't catch anything, then I will, you know, say, have you got a, a smart device, a smart watch or something? And some patients, you know, who get frequent bouts of palpitations and, you know, often will come to hospital and it'll have settled. So, you know, it eludes recording. Um, they're the exact kind of people where I think it has been really beneficial. And then they'll, you know, and so now I'm getting lots of um, Apple Watch recorded traces and I'm, I'm totally used to seeing them in clinic now. Um, and they've offered quite a few benefits, but these are patients who have symptoms. That's the key thing. This is not just someone who's feeling completely well and then getting a little alert on their on their their watch. Um, this is quite a different population. And what what is, what's the difference there is your pretest probability of having a problem is higher. I could not agree more. That is so well said. Because as you mentioned, on the flip side, false positives can cause undue anxiety. 
drive up health costs, unwarranted ER visits, etc. But I do agree that in individuals who have symptoms, it can be helpful. And it's not first line. Obviously, as you've mentioned, we do a proper uh, outpatient, whether it's a halter monitor 48 hours or a Zeo patch, etc., to um, evaluate someone's rhythm. But for someone that if nothing shows up or if they come in, they had symptoms and they do happen to have recordings from their Apple Watch, I'm happy to review it. Interestingly enough, one of my patients, I hope he's listening, is a huge runner, super duper runner, and noticed on his Apple Watch that he ran a whole marathon and his heart rate did not change. He was at 150 the entire time for the whole marathon. He was like, this is strange. And he felt totally fine. And his Apple Watch didn't say he was in atrial fibrillation or anything. He was just tachycardic. The marathon ends. He's still at 150. He's like, this is also strange. I'm still, uh, you know, why is my heart rate so fast? But Apple Watch did not notice by him he comes to see me in the office he was in two to one flutter (laughs) and it's very impressive he did a a marathon the whole marathon without symptoms in two to one flutter he um, ended up uh getting an ablation and was totally great um but it was interesting because the apple watch did not say he had an arrhythmia he just noticed he was like why is my heart rate still you know um one 50. And of course, as soon as I saw him before even did an EKG in the office, I knew right away. I was like, this is going to be Tudor and Flutter um, because it had not changed. He had that (laughs) same steady as a rock. Um, But I agree. So it can be super helpful um, for the right patient who already has it. But I wouldn't recommend anyone go out and buy one for themselves. If you're, you know, an individual who's, you know, younger and you don't, like you mentioned, maybe in a specific population with a high pretest probability in the older population, there could be some benefits. But then again, I cannot tell you how many times I review what patients think is really scary ectopy that is just uh, noise. That's just artifact all the time. Um, and so I do think there is something to be said for it creating more alarm in, in patients as well. So kind of, you know, we don't have data to show for the general population at this time that it's a phenomenal tool. And as you mentioned, not a great screening tool yet. But I do agree with you that the hope is there that it eventually could be because I do think that in many scenarios, I mean, I recommend loops for a variety of different patients, implantable loop recorders. And um, and so for a variety of different clinical scenarios, and it would be nice to have something that was just as accurate that's on your wrist. You know what I mean? Eventually one day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, something something that some of the engineers tell me that I'm I'm just repeating what they're saying is devices that are wrist based are never going to be as accurate as sort of the chest strap kinds of devices for for mm. for a lot of this stuff. So, um, c- c- certainly, uh, people seem to feel that um, stuff like you know the polar, um, which you have a strap around and and around the chest, um, tends to be more accurate i know i notice for myself that my apple watch will lose my heart rate when i'm in the gym and it it, it you know a lot of inaccuracies creep in there so yeah i think these things are all tools and as you have said uh, everybody's different so some people they can look at the data and be like oh okay that's cool and and it doesn't upset them but other people can really get very preoccupied And I think one thing I wanted to kind of round out and end on is something important that I've seen you talk a lot about on social media that I speak about often, too, that um, I think is really important to discuss and be 
over-testing, kind of the over-testing, over-diagnosis kind of rabbit hole that patients can fall down into that can actually provide more harm, which is why pre-test probability is so important and why when we go looking for things, why we're not just recommending full body scans for everyone to evaluate us head to toe. And I think that there is this culture with wearables, whether it's wearables or CGMs, et cetera, that more data is better. And I actually think we have quite a lot of evidence to show us that's not always the case. We're not annually stress testing healthy individuals to see if we can find something. Um, And I would just love your thoughts on that, on the more conservative kind of view of medicine where we, you know, don't want to put people in unnecessary harms, because I think this also relates to a lot of the bro science that you and I talk about, which includes checking labs frequently that have no clinical significance um, and doing all of this variety of testing and, you know, over testing and how that can be harmful. I'd love your thoughts. Oh, I mean, that's <laughs> closing question. That's I could talk for about another two hours. I just know, on that. I know. <laughs> um, yeah, this is a real bugbear of mine. Um, and I do feel like a lot of this mentality emanates from the kind of Silicon Valley mindset and why this this kind of mix between tech and, and medicine, um, which is very exciting, can also generate these kinds of beliefs. And, you know, occasionally it is physicians that that uh, that come out with this stuff. They tend to be physicians who have got some sort of, um, you know, they've they've set up the company or they've got some sort of financial uh, remuneration to to promote this stuff but they will come out with these kind of wild suggestions like every year i get a full body mri and then uh, even if it's not a physician it's some sort of tech guy saying it this is pretty much a monthly thing on twitter you'll feed some guy for either in like business insider or tech inside tech crunch or something be like why why i get a full body mri every year and then you you'll have hundreds of replies and they'll all be from doctors saying this is a terrible idea and and it's just so stark every and I've, I've collected a few of these examples i use them in talks because every time the guy it's it's almost always a guy and they'll post <laughs> post it saying you know i do all these tests i get screened for this that and the other i have blood tests and this scan and then um they just seem completely bewildered when they just get um, you know, politely jumped on by by doctors just saying, please don't do this. This is a terrible idea. Why don't we advise everybody to get a full body MRI scan every year? It seems completely logical. Like, you know, as you say, it's just data. And that's the kind of Silicon Valley mentality is, is you know, very much data driven. All of our modern tech overlords have built their business on, on data. So there is this feeling that, that it, it can only be good so what's the difference? Why is it different to just getting data on, you know, like uh, in computers or something? The the main, I mean, there are, there are multiple things, but the main one f- from my perspective is is incidental omas. So these are things that uh, are picked up incidentally, as the name suggests. And if you do a full body MRI scan, I guarantee you will find some bump, some spot somewhere. Some herniated the, disc. Something, you know, something. we're all, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, you look at, the out, outside of people, we've all got spots and marks in different places, and we're, we're used to seeing kind of variety in external appearance. But there's, of course, going to be variety in internal appearance as well. We're not all going to be identical. So you'll see something like a nodule or a cyst somewhere. 
And the radiologist, and you know, they're they're often again, the they're not given any clinical details. So this again comes back to pretest probability. If I do a CT scan and send it to a radiologist and say this person has got right upper quadrant pain in in their abdomen, they're gonna be thinking, ah, okay, so what are my diagnoses? They're gonna be specifically focusing on that. And if they see something abnormal in the liver, they'll be like, well, I think this is going to be your diagnosis here. But if I just say this person feels fine, there's nothing wrong with them, then how can they place any kind of clinical weight in some nodule they see in the lung or a cyst they see in the, the liver? All they're going to say is this was detected, unclear significance, suggests repeat scan in six months or three months. So immediately that patient or that person, they're not a patient, they're, they're a person that is normally paid out of pocket to do some sort of well man or well woman checkup. They are now a patient. They've become part of the medical industry. So now they are going to you know, have to pay for another scan and they're going to next, spend the next few months panicking and worrying that, oh my God, is what is this thing? Is it cancer? I don't know. And or if they're in the, the UK, they'll pay for that initial test, but then the Resultant investigations are kind of dumped on on the National Health Service, so you know there's a um, a monetary cost to the patient or to the to the health system, as well as that emotional cost as well. And even if the, it gets repeated, and they're saying, "Well, we're still not entirely sure," you know, this this isn't. I'm not sort of making this a very um, uh, fictitious scenario. This is very much something that can happen. The radiologist will again say, "I don't really know," and this this is something I've experienced because. I used to report a lot of cardiac MRI scans, and um, obviously that the heart is in the chest, but we catch the whole lung. So often I'd be, you know, sending on these kind of. I see a nodule in the in the thyroid, and I have a case, you know, that that really stuck with me because I, I referred it on with a, a thyroid abnormality. She had um, an inconclusive scan, and biop the biopsy was also inconclusive. So she had um, some radiotherapy and she was hoping to get pregnant during this period and she had to put that off and she was already in her 40s at that point and uh, also had this damage to her her singing ability so it ended up being an absolute catastrophe for her and uh, you know when nobody's really sure what would have happened if none of that had ha had ever been done and that, that cardiac scan in the first place didn't really need to be done to be honest and I can't you know, there's no crystal ball. I can't say for definite if that would have become cancer and, and she was actually better off for having taken it out. But I know that, you know, she ended up coming to harm because of something that I detected on a scan. And she really, you know, need never have had that scan. So the, the, these are real potential harms that can come to people with any of these kinds of tests. And I, I absolutely, this comes back to the point we were making earlier on about the over-medicalization of ev everyday life, whether it's with a lot of wearable data, or whether it's with with sort of screening tests like this, there are always pitfalls. It, it's not it's not as you know black and white as it seems, and um, you know there are probably many other potential complications and things I, I could think of. But you know that those are some clear examples, and certainly one that sticks in my mind because, and so I, I've you know I, I do try and be as vocal as I can with calling out a lot of these. Profit-making companies for what they are, you know, that they are not looking to help anyone because if they were, they would see, they would look at the data that these kind of screening tests have no evidence to support them, 
And by of course, if you have problems, if you have symptoms, of course, then you need to see a doctor and get investigated. But if you feel fine, with very few exceptions, genuinely very, very few exceptions, I would suggest you just stay well away from the medical profession and um, any expensive looking scanning equipment or, or, you know, tests. That story is powerful. I do thank you for talking about the conservative portion of medicine that you and I both agree in. And even though we're both hopeful for the technology for the future, I think it's going to continue to get better. I mean, imagine 10 years ago, coronary CTA wasn't even as, um, you know, ubiquitous and I use it all the time. But I do think that we both have a safe amount of skepticism as well when it comes to especially podcasts making recommendations for a variety of interesting things. So where can everyone find you and your amazing, 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 amazing YouTube, which I am telling you guys, if you have a chance, please subscribe as soon as you finish this, because there are so many good episodes to catch up on. Yeah, I'm on sort of the usual social media platforms. Uh, you can just look for my name, Rohan Francis, or Medlife Crisis is my. I don't really know, even know how. I could, do you know? You, you wouldn't. You wouldn't believe it, but that the, the um, original plan I had for a YouTube channel was purely bro science, gym stuff. No way. And my friends were joking that oh, you're getting really you know into the gym. You're having a midlife crisis, and. Oh my. Uh, and then I thought, oh, midlife crisis. That was why I chose the, the channel name. But then it ended up being more kind of general medical science. But it was going to be purely sort of based around all that stuff. Um, so, yeah, midlife crisis. That's me. It's Your YouTube's awesome. And your Twitter and your Instagram, everything's great. But your YouTube is really educational and really helpful. So I really think everyone should take a listen. And thank you so much for chatting with me today. Not at all. It was a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I would love to keep bringing you all the latest health and wellness information and misinformation to debunk. So please do me a quick favor and leave a five-star rating review and share with a friend. Make sure to leave a comment about which wellness fad you'd like debunk next, and I'll get to the bottom of it. Follow me on Instagram at MD and our podcast page at Wellness Fact Versus Fiction, and be sure to tune in next week.